Well, Father, we are always encouraged when we gather together as your body. Thank you for the great testimony and song. Thank you for the, the work that you're doing with pioneers and with the Mackenzies. And I pray that you would meet their needs in very specific ways. Thank you that we can stand with them in support and in prayer. Father, may our attention and our, our careful uh, note of detail, even the quietness of our hearts, the intention and the follow-through of obedience, may all of this be an extended part of our worship now as we receive your word. Use it well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you uh, might be Randy Travis fans. Randy Travis is a country-western singer, and uh, he sings a song that, um, that I think is, um, um, uh, fits pretty well for an introduction this morning. It's loaded with bad theology, but um, listen to the words. It's called, Pray for the Fish. Here's the words, Randy Travis Everybody gathered where the river runs wider at the edge of town to see if that Eddie Lee Vaughn baptism was really going to go down. Folks bet their hard-earned money that water wouldn't change a thing. They were right. They set the odds at a hundred to one his soul wouldn't never come clean. Then the preacher said, People take a moment or two, there's something we need to do. Pray for the fish. They won't know what's coming when the sin starts rolling off the likes of him. Lord be with them, they ain't done nothing. Please won't you leave them just a little bit of room to swim? Pray for the fish. Well, the preacher ducked him under that cool, clear water, and then he did it again, and Eddie came up yelling, Lord in heaven, hallelujah, I'm a brand new man. Well, the water got to bubbling, sky got to rumbling, and the thunder backed up the choir. The fish started jumping. It was like they were swimming in a lake of fire. And then Eddie's mama stepped out of the crowd and started yelling out loud, pray for the fish. They won't know what's coming when the sin starts rolling off the likes of him. Lord be with them, they ain't done nothing. Please won't you leave them just a little bit of room to swim? Pray for the fish. He said, everybody cross your fingers, fold your hands, pray for old Eddie before, you, before we say amen, and pray for the fish. Lord be with them, they ain't done nothing. Please won't you leave them just a little bit of room to swim? Pray for the fish. Lord, pray for the fish. I take it that old Eddie Lee Vaughn was a pretty bad guy. So bad that... Uh, and this is the part that's bad about their theology. The baptism is only an external demonstration of what God has already done inside. But I wonder if um, you've ever known somebody that was so bad that you thought that their baptism might kill the fish. <laughs> I wonder if you've ever known someone or you're praying for someone and maybe you're like Eddie's mama and you know someone who's so bad that you're not even sure God could save them. We're dealing with the issue of sin these weeks. In fact, today and, and then next Sunday for Thanksgiving weekend, we will be concluding our official sin series. Lord willing, we're going to begin a brand new book study and we're going to work our way through the Gospel of Matthew um, beginning the first Sunday in December. And it's going to, uh, for at least the month of December, be a salvation series. I thought it would be appropriate for us to follow our sin series with a, with a salvation series. This morning, I want to talk about people like Eddie Lee Vaughn. 
People who are so bad and so sinful that you're not sure that God can save them. In fact, I want to answer some questions about sin. We've been uh, rooting around the scriptures trying to discern what the Bible has to say about sin. And we're, we're finding out that it's really serious. And we also recognize the need on our own part to view sin the way God views sin. And in fact, to do that, we need to have a renewed understanding of the very holiness of God so that the, so that the shock and the awe of the heinous nature of sin that God receives when He observes it is the same thing that we would feel. We're running out of weeks. I probably have about 19 more uh, sermon ideas for this series, but we need to wrap it up. And I thought it would be helpful for us this morning to do something just a little bit differently, and that is I want to do a Q&A. I want to ask, ask and answer some specific questions that you would think we would get to in a sin series, and we haven't been able to get to them yet. We're in Matthew chapter 12 to begin with, please, as we have question number one. I'll withhold, uh, refrain from telling you how many questions I have, and that way you don't know whether we finish the message on schedule or not. But uh, question number one, I think you will find an interesting question, and it, and it uh, kind of turns our mind back to Eddie Lee Vaughn and uh, praying for the fish. Is it possible to be so bad, is it possible to have so much sin in your life that God can't forgive you? And question number one specifically is a question that I think you'll find interesting and that maybe you've thought about before and wondered about, and it is particularly this. Is it possible that old Eddie Levon even committed the unpardonable sin? What about the unpardonable sin? What does that mean? And perhaps, parentheses in our question, have I committed it? Have you ever wondered that? I wonder if there really is an unpardonable sin. What is it? And have I possibly committed it? Is it possible? We're going to read an interesting little stretch of Scripture recorded for us by Matthew. In Matthew chapter 12, we're going to begin with verse 22. And one of the questions that comes to your mind right away about the unpardonable sin is, now wait a minute. I know some stories from my Bible, and I know some people who were really, really bad. And God forgave them. Let's take King David, for example. He is about as lousy of a scoundrel as could ever be. Stinking liar. Schnookered his best general into getting killed on the battlefront. He literally murdered him by his own command. Adulterated with his wife. Lied and cheated to cover it up. And yet God forgave him. God forgave him. What about that precious lady in Luke chapter 7? Remember the one with the long hair? that came in and broke an alabaster jar of perfume on our Lord Jesus' feet. And, and the Pharisees were there and they were watching. And they said, if he knew how bad that woman was, he wouldn't let her touch him. Jesus looks up and says to them, you haven't even kept the, the common courtesy of the day and washed my feet with a bowl of water. And she comes in and cries her tears on my feet and loosens her hair and takes it down and wipes off the dirt off my feet, wetting them with her tears. She takes alabaster jar and breaks it, a year's salary perhaps worth, and breaks it and perfumes me. Listen, remember what he said? He said, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. 
Surely that woman had committed every heinous, immoral sin that could be committed. And she was forgiven. What about that rascal, that prodigal son? It wasn't too long ago we talked about him. Spitting in his father's face. Wishing his father were dead. Taking his father's hard-earned, lifelong savings. Taking his portion. Going off in riotous living. Living and committing probably every sin imaginable. At least the older brother thought that was true. And then when he comes home, what does the father do? Welcome home. I forgive you, son. Come be restored. I think the Bible teaches us that we can confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and and cleanse us. What's the next word? From all unrighteousness. Wait a minute, Pastor Van. Can't be there's an unpardonable sin. What is that all about? With that in mind, recognizing that God is a forgiving God and that we are, we are called to come into His presence, to bow humbly in His presence and to be forgiven and that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from what, what unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. What is Jesus talking about? The first thing I want you to see in our story is that the Pharisees make, number one, a terrible accusation. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. That's a pretty cool thing right there. Grown man, evidently socially inept, acting very much uh, mentally challenged. He's mute. He can't speak clearly. That implies that he was deaf. It says specifically that he was blind. This is a pitiful, pitiful man. It says that this is demonically induced, and it says that Jesus healed him. Look what happens. And all the people were amazed. That concept of amazement there in the Greek is like it blew their minds. And said, can this be the son of David? Could this be the son of David? In other words, maybe this really is the Messiah. You see, all of Israel was waiting for the Messiah. They longed for Messiah. And this could be it. This could be it. But when the Pharisees, you remember the Pharisees, right? They're the religious leaders of the day. They hated Jesus. They did not believe he was God in the flesh. They did not believe that he was the Messiah. And even when he did beautiful, precious, kind acts that no one else could do, they despised him. I mean, what is with you that you can watch Jesus take a blind, mute man and heal him and then say this? Look what they said. And here's number one, the terrible accusation. But when the Pharisees, verse 24, heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. What is that all about? Here he casts out demons and then they say, yeah, but the only reason he can do it is because he's like the devil and he, he uses the devil's power to cast out the devil. That's crazy. This is perhaps the finest moment the Pharisees could ever imagine in their lives. They've got God in the flesh in front of them. They've got Him demonstrating His sovereign authority over demons and darkness and illness and sickness, and they call Him the devil. you got the Son of God right in your presence. You say, You're the devil. Isn't it amazing how even today in our world it's being manifested around us, this despicable, hor- horrific attitude towards Jesus. You can pray in God's name, but you can't say, you say, oh, that's, what did Jesus ever do? 
Nothing but good. Just like his people. Hey, you just about rather be anything than a born-again Christian today. It's about as politically incorrect as you can get. What's that all about? They hate that. And these Pharisees, they had dirty, dark... In fact, Jesus, Jesus never used stronger words towards anyone. He never spoke. That woman with the, the sinful woman who came and cried her tears and wept on his feet, wiped his feet, he loved her. It says it in the passage, and Jesus loved her. The Pharisees, he would look, he would say... You say, you're of your father, the devil, and when you speak, you speak in your native language lies. He said, you're whited sepulchers. You look good on the outside, all dressed up, and you got your religious jewelry on, and you got your religious clothes on, and your collar on backwards, and whatever, and you're nothing but a, nothing but a grave filled with dead, stinking bones. You're rotten to the core. That's how Jesus talked to the Pharisees all the time. They were self-righteous. They were pious in our Matthew series. We will have to take some time and help develop an understanding, a better understanding of really what these Pharisees were about because Jesus intersects with the Pharisees over and over in the Gospel of Matthew. They make a terrible accusation. Jesus then responds with a very logical explanation. He uses logic to appeal to their senses. And it says, it, says um, it is only the Pharisees make this accusation. It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. So he's just using a logical progression of thought. You're accusing me of being the devil to cast out the devil. That would be a divided house. That kind of house can't stand. That's an inconsistency. It's illogical and it's, incons it's an inconsistency. Why would we do that? And if Satan, verse 26, casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Satan wouldn't run his kingdom like that. Furthermore, if I, verse 27, cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast out demons? See, they, in their system, had exorcists and exercises of exorcism, because demon possession was fairly common. Do you remember back in Matthew chapter 7, and we'll encounter this passage, a powerful passage, it's a bothersome passage to people, where Jesus is kicking them out of his kingdom, and, and they say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? They thought they could cast out demons, and they were none of his. So they, Jesus then just points it, well, if your guys cast out demons, how come, how come it's not in Beelzebul's name and it is in my name? What's going on? You guys are inconsistent here. And he's just pointing out the weaknesses of their logic. And he gives this logical explanation. The next thing he points out is that he's the Messiah. Basically, verse 28 is saying that salvation is available. Number three, an available salvation. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Like, this is your greatest moment. You've never had a moment like this. I am demonstrating to you that I am God in the flesh, that I have authority over the spirit world. I have authority over sickness. I can speak a word. I am the one who created all of this. I am indeed the Messiah. I am marking this as the, the point of reference, that this is what I am. And you're calling me the devil. And, and furthermore, if, if I am the Messiah, this is your great moment of deliverance to enter the kingdom of God. And they just like hiss. They totally reject the available salvation that is there for them. Verse 29, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. The idea is if I, am, if I 
uh, did this by the power of Beelzebub, then I would have to tie up Beelzebub. And I can't, you know, why would you do that? You wouldn't tie up your own self. Whoever is not with me, he goes on in verse 30, pointing out number four, a critical identification. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, with Jesus, there's no middle ground. Either in or you're out, for one thing. He's pointing out to them, you're either on my side or you're not on my side. And you either, you either gather or you scatter. You're going to identify with me or you're going to identify with Beelzebul. Therefore, I tell you, he goes on now, he's speaking strongly, and he gives number five, an eternal condemnation to these Pharisees. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Okay, that's good news right there. Did you get that? That's good news. Every sin, Jesus said, and blasphemy will be forgiven people. You don't want to raise your hand right now, but I suspect there's people in this room who have cursed God in their past. I suspect that there have people here who have sworn and cursed and wished to die and called out for God and called curses to God in your anger and in your temper and in in a horrible nature. I remember I, I did it once when I was five years old. I have a memory of this. I was so angry with my mother as she was getting me ready for Sunday school and church and making me put a necktie on, and I didn't want to wear a necktie. And this is burned in one of the earliest memories that I have. I can hardly remember first grade, about age five or six. And we were getting ready to go to church. My dad's the pastor. I have to go. But I was always already showing my rebellious heart. And I said to my mother, I hate church, and I'd like to spit it out of my mouth. Whoa, you're talking about the bride of Christ. You're talking about the body of Christ. You're talking about the called out ones, the ecclesia. You're talking about the people for whom Christ died. And little six-year-old Vanner's saying, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm glad I can be forgiven of that blasphemy. He put me in purgatory and trapped me in church ever since. But (laughs) I mean... You don't have to think too hard, do you, to think that I am so glad that everything can be forgiven. He just said, but then there's a qualifying, look at he said, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. You can curse Christ and be forgiven. You can curse your mama and be forgiven. I stood and sat in my car picking up a teen boy one day and watched him on his front porch curse out his mother. I almost killed him. But God can forgive you of that. But look at this. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, there it is. The Son of Man is Jesus, will be forgiven. You can speak directly against Jesus. He'll forgive you. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Bam! That's pretty scary words, isn't it? What is that? What is that? Jesus gives this eternal condemnation for blasphemy against his Holy Spirit. Listen, I think it would be helpful to understand, to think that the first part of our understanding of this is the, is the recognition that, that something's going on here between Jesus and the Pharisees. Many Bible commentators will state that they believe that this 
unpardonable sin could only have been committed there in the presence, the physical bodily presence of Christ while he ministered on earth. And it was exactly what they said. It was a witness of the Messiah at work through the power of the Holy Spirit and blaspheming his power and saying it was from Satan, Satan, which then brought this condemnation on them. And I think that there's some truth to that. At some level, this is a a sin that was committed there in the presence of Christ. However, spiritually speaking, couldn't you do the same exact thing today? Christ is present. His Spirit is present. Couldn't you acknowledge a despicable nature towards Christ and reject the working of His Holy Spirit in such a way that you blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Here's part of what I think is happening here. And this is not necessarily an easy passage to understand. I think part of what Jesus is saying is that if you reject what the Holy Spirit is doing and what the Holy Spirit is making plain, and in front of them, Jesus had healed this this blind, mute man through the power of the Holy Spirit in him, and they had called it a satanic work. They had made a horrible, terrible accusation against him. So therefore, they were saying that what the Holy Spirit did was to be rejected and that it was of the devil. Listen, if you reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you never get to the Son of God. You will never recognize that Jesus is Messiah if you reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes the lights turn on. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes His Word real. Remember Alonzo Puller's testimony up here? He said he was sitting out in front of a light on 340, the one down by, that was towards south of town. At 2 o'clock in the morning, he didn't tell you what he told. He was on his way home from sinning, bad sin. And he was sitting at the light, and that's when the Spirit of God turned the lights on. And he went home and got beside his bed and kneeled down and prayed. He let the Holy Spirit work. He worked with the Holy Spirit. If you, if you recognize that the Spirit of God is at work and you reject it, There's no hope for you. There is no other gospel. There is no other way. If you reject this grace of God that comes to you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you can never get to Jesus. So in a sense, you could commit this today by by turning away any kind of word of God, any kind of compulsion to want to be saved, a recognition that... Because I think that the Pharisees realized that they had the real thing on their hands and they still said in their stubbornness and in their mule-headedness, you're of the devil. They didn't want anything to do with him, even though they knew he wasn't bad. They knew. So we need to examine ourselves spiritually in light of how did the Pharisees... What did the Pharisees think? What were they doing? What was wrong? And in a, in a form of a spiritual examination, think about it. The Pharisees have the greatest moment of their life at, in front of them. They reject it. Why? Because to receive Christ... The forgiveness of sin that is in Christ, you must believe that He is who He is, right? Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you're going to be saved, you must believe that He died, that He was buried, that He rose again, and and that He is the Son of God. You must believe. Believe is the number one word that's used throughout our New Testament to describe saving faith. The Pharisees refuse to believe. Who is, it that, that, who is it that draws a sinner? Who is it that opens the eyes of a sinner so that they will believe? The Holy Spirit. So if you reject the Holy Spirit, you will never believe in the Son of God. If you never believe in the Son of God, you are eternally condemned. The second thing you have to do besides believe is you must repent. 
That is, you have to confess the fact that you are a sinner. Remember last week we talked about the fact that when we confess our sins, we are saying, I am in agreement with God about the condition of my heart and my sinfulness. To confess my sins means I agree with God. I view my sin. The Pharisees refused to do that. Jesus himself, with the forerunner, John the Baptist, calling the very first message out of John the Baptist's mouth was, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes into his public ministry and he says, Repent. Peter preaches in Jerusalem to the masses and he calls them to repent of their sin by crucifying the Son of God. Repent of that. Renounce it. Turn away from your sin. That's all a ministry of the Holy Spirit. So not only did the Pharisees reject the work of the Holy Spirit that would allow them to believe, the, the Pharisees rejected this work of, of, of idea of repentance. They would never repent of their sins. They didn't think that they sinned. They prided themselves in their personal perfection. The third thing that the Pharisees did was that they refused to humble themselves. You see, you have to humble your heart to come to God. That's why sometimes it's hard for young men to come to Christ. They think they're strong and tough and cool. They think they got it together. They think God's going to ruin their good times. Nothing could be further from the truth. He'll give you wisdom. He'll conform you to the image of Christ. He'll make you into the man that God called you to be. But you've got to humble your heart. Pride is one of the big problems with sin. We've talked about that. So there you go. There's just a few simple illustrations of what the Pharisees refused to do. They refused to believe. They refused to repent. They refused to humble their hearts. All of that happens through the ministry and working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So they rejected the work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they could never come to Christ. Now, I think... That at some level, in a way like in the, in the book of Exodus, God says to Moses, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's a, a troubling passage, isn't it? You think, well, anybody can come to God at any time. And that's true. Anytime there's life and breath in your body, you can come to God, you can repent and confess and be saved. As long as there's life, there's hope. But it is a scary thing to, to entrench yourself in your sin and to reject Christ and to reject the Holy Spirit's work in your life to soften your heart because the testimony of Scripture is that you can get to a place where God will let you go to yourself. He'll just say, okay, you can have a hard heart. See, Pharaoh wanted to have a hard heart. Pharaoh didn't want to believe. And repeatedly, in fact, ten huge illustrations in the form of the ten plagues Moses had told him that God was all-powerful and he refused in his pride till God finally says, it's over, buddy. It's over. And I think in the, in the case of the Pharisees, as they have the living Christ embodied right there physically in front of them and they reject him, God says, okay, you're eternally condemned. It's over for you. As a nation, Israel was condemned. As individuals, the Pharisees were condemned. So you say to yourself... Is it possible for me to really commit this sin? Is this sin unforgivable today? Here's a little axiom to to keep you from stressing out and losing sleep. If you want to be forgiven, you haven't committed this sin. If you care about what God thinks, you have not committed this sin. Because people who blaspheme the Holy Spirit and have hardened their heart to the degree that God has given them over to their own condemnation, they're glad they're there. In fact, let me give you a little true-false quiz as to whether or not you've committed the unpardonable sin. 
Now, it's possible somebody in this room is really, really hard-hearted. You really don't like Jesus. True, false. It's my favorite form of test. True, false. Some diagnostic questions to help you discern whether you've committed the unpardonable sin. True or false? Number one, I despise Jesus Christ. Would you say that today? In your heart of hearts, would you say it's absolutely true? I despise Jesus. The Pharisees would circle true on that. True or false? Question number two. The name of Jesus makes me sick. At the least, it makes me angry when I hear the name of Christ. I can't stand that name. The Pharisees would say that's absolutely true. He makes us sick. He makes us angry. We despise his name. It's possible someone in this room feels that way. True, false, question number three, the final question on the quiz I can't stand it. I cannot stand it when someone says to me that Jesus Christ alone is the true way of salvation. That makes me so mad. I wonder if you circled true for any of those. You see, if you do, you are in grave danger this morning, my friend. Because the Holy Spirit has reached out to open your eyes to truth, to make the Word of God clear, to let you know that God loves you, sent His only Son to die on the cross for you, and you say, I can't stand Jesus, means you have rejected the work of the Holy Spirit, which would allow you to see Jesus for who He is. Therefore, you will be eternally condemned. And so listen, if you have committed this sin... You don't care. Everybody got that? If you're worried if you've committed this sin, and you care about it and you're worried about it, you have not committed this sin. If you have committed this sin, you don't care if you've committed this sin. That's question number one, and hopefully a helpful answer. We'll just uh, wrap it up right there. How about it? I wonder if there's someone here that in their heart of hearts, you're like the Pharisees. You know, the next part of the passage in verse 33 through 37 says it's about this tree with good fruit and bad fruit. And that the fruit gives itself away. And that's where we're, it tells you on the day of judgment, people, verse 38, will give an account of every careless word they speak for. For by your words you will be justified or by your words you'll be condemned. What's that all about? It's, that goes along with this hardness of heart with the Pharisees, I think. Because it tells what's going on on the inside. And your words will give you a, I hate Jesus, I can't stand that kind of stuff. My friend, I would call on you today that if you have life and breath, you can be saved today. Listen, I'm confident, I am confident that people here in this room could, could totally overwhelm us with the sinful stories of things they've committed. That's exactly who God sent His Son for. That's exactly what the cross is for. To do for us what we can't do for ourselves, and that is take care of our sin problem, give us a new nature, turn the lights on so that we see God for who He is, conform us to the image of Christ, make us a new creation in Christ. Great stories. 
you don't know Jesus Christ, I say, search your heart today, examine yourself. Why not? And if you find yourself perhaps in a situation where today, for whatever reason, you say to yourself, I can't stand Jesus. I despise that name. I can't wait for this service to go over. You've thought about getting up and getting out of here already. I call upon you to wake up and know that God loves you, to confess your sin, respond to the ministry of the Holy Spirit before your heart is so hard that you end up eternally condemned and unforgivable in the sense, particularly once you stop breathing, you are then unforgivable. And if you reject the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, you will never come to Jesus. And if you never come to Jesus, you will never be saved. That's how I think it applies to us. Let's bow in prayer, please. How about in your heart of hearts today? What does Jesus mean to you? God has enough wisdom to know when we've said foolish things in our past. Maybe, like me when I was six years old, saying such a foolish thing of wanting to spit his church out of my mouth. I doubt he smiled that day, but he has enough sense to know that I was pretty mad about wearing a tie and a jacket. I don't know what you get mad about. I don't know what spews out of your mouth. I don't know what you care about. In this passage, don't miss the fact that every sin and every blasphemy, even against the Son of God, Jesus, can be forgiven. But don't reject the work of His Holy Spirit as He seeks to woo you and open your eyes to truth. The Bible says that today's the day of salvation. You never know what's going to happen. Here's what you do. You admit your sinfulness and you agree with God about your sin. And then you recognize that Jesus Christ alone paid the price for your sin. And that no longer makes you want to grind your teeth and make you scream. In fact, you're ready to bow your knee and bow your head and your heart below this, before this Jesus Christ who went to the cross for you. And He took your place, and by faith, that is just believing, you reach out and take this free gift of forgiveness and salvation. You just reach out and take it. You don't buy it. You don't earn it. You just say, okay, God, I receive it. I know I'm a sinner. I agree with you about my sin. I believe that Jesus died in my place. I now receive this free gift. And John 3.36 says, He that has the Son has life, and he that does not have the Son is condemned already. Come out of your condemnation while you have time. So, Father, work in our hearts. Challenge us to tell ourselves the truth. Thank you for this interesting passage that uh, has been put before us today. May your spirit take it and use it now according to your plan to those who need it in just a certain way. It's in Jesus' name we pray.